Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. And today, Dr. Richard Wolf is going to drop by. We're going to ask him what the best, three best stimulus ideas would be that Joe Biden could offer. I have some opinions, and I'll share them with you in just a moment. But I want to start out with the idea or the sad reality that America is dying. We have been dying for 40 years. Ever since the Reagan revolution, America has been shrinking. Our role in the world has been diminishing. Our internal politics have been diminishing. Our people have been dying. Our workers have had their pay gutted. We've, families have been torn apart. America is dying. So where do we start putting it back together. Now, you've heard me rant about various aspects of this for years and years and years, but there's this, this thing called the rule of threes. And now that I've sensitized you to this, you will start noticing it everywhere, in news stories, in articles, in books, you know, in everything. It's called the rule of threes. People will say, well, you know, we need health care, education, and a Green New Deal. That's three, right? I'd say, and and there, there's a reason for the real rule of threes, that, that all writers follow it. Many don't even realize they're following it. We even do it in conversation. And that's because it's wired into us. The average person can only hold four or five, maybe at the most seven, plus or minus two or three things in their mind at one time. And the baseline, the, the, the first two or three of those things are, where am I? How how do I keep sitting up straight? You know, what's my environment? That kind of survival stuff. And so really, you know, three ideas is about all most people can get their heads around in a hurry. So I respectfully offer three steps for Joe Biden and the Democrats in the House and Senate, now that they control both, barely but enough, right? Now that they control both, to go forward. And those are what I just said, education, health care, and the Green New Deal. Number one, education. Prior to the Reagan Revolution, you could go to, pretty much anybody in the United States could go to college. Louise and I both went to college, and I didn't graduate, but, you know, <laughs> I, I attended uh, for a short while. And I paid for my tuition. I paid the rent on a little apartment in East Lansing. I bought my own food. I, I bought a car for 35 bucks and paid the cost. Of, all of it on a part-time job pumping gas at the Esso station on Trowbridge Road in East Lansing, Michigan, and as a dishwasher at Bob's Big Boy across the street from the gas station. That's what I did on weekends to pay my way through school. And I was also working weekends. Actually, I was working at the Esso station more often in the mornings because at that point in time, I was working at weekends uh, as a DJ, too, as a part-time DJ. But the point is, and back then, the minimum wage was like $3 an hour or something like that. And Louise put herself through school as a waitress, the word of the day, at Howard Johnson's, right? You could do that. My mother graduated magna cum laude from Michigan State University back in the 1940s. She put herself through school working as a lifeguard summers in Charlevoix, Michigan, and washing and propping airplanes at the Lansing Airport on weekends. 
she also traded that for uh, flying lessons, which is, <laughs> my mother was quite a person. Anyhow, you could do that back in the day. You can't now. Reagan turned, he looked at education and he said, you know, somebody should be able to make a buck off this. You know, this is kind of the official Republican mantra for everything. Somebody should make a buck off this. Let's turn it from being a public utility into being an industry. And as a result, we have two generations of young people, 40 years worth of young people. And many of them aren't young anymore. You know, some of them are in their 60s now. But we have 40 years, we have two generations of young people who were not able to start families early like Louise and I did. I mean, we got, we got married, you know, in our early, tw- I was 21 when we got married. I was 26 when we bought our first house. Young people can't do that anymore because they're saddled with student debt. They're carrying around 20, 30, 50, $100,000 with a student debt. You can't get a loan to do that. You can't move on to, with life to do that. So number one, we need to do two things about education. Number one, we need to make college free or at least very affordable, so affordable that you can you know, pay your tuition with a part-time job on the weekends. And number two, we need to rebuild our primary school education our fundamental education. Betsy DeVos took a meat axe to this thing, to our educational system in an attempt to to destroy public education or replace it with for-profit education run by other billionaires like her. And we need to fix that. So that's number one. Number two, health care. We've got tens of thousands of Americans every year who die from lack of access to health care. We have 80 million people who are underinsured and some 50 million, 40 to 50 million who are uninsured. And in fact, that number is probably probably much higher. The number who are, I I would argue, that 100% of Americans, 340 million of us, are underinsured because we're paying absurd, you know, initial fees, co-payments, you know, surprise billing. I mean, it's just, it's insane. No other developed country in the world does this. Literally none. And none of them are begging for the American healthcare system. And in the meantime, you know, you've got CEOs like Dollar Bill McGuire over at United Healthcare taking over a billion dollars with a B. His successor, Stephen Hemsley, took several hundred million dollars. I mean, this is nuts, right? Every penny of that comes from United Healthcare or some other health insurance company saying, no, we're not going to pay for your kid's liver transplant, sorry. And so, number two, we need Medicare for all. I think that's fairly obvious. And number three, our planet is dying. And it is costing us American lives from, you know, I mean, wildfires, hurricanes, tornadoes, derechos, all this kind of stuff. We need to rebuild our physical infrastructure. Our educational infrastructure is our education. Our healthcare infrastructure is healthcare. This is all infrastructure, right? And our physical infrastructure. Rebuild our roads, rebuild our transportation systems, electrify our cars, bring our homes up to code, as it were, and give them electric heat and generate electricity and create a whole brand new electric power grid. Our original electric power grid was first. The first early building of it was in the 1890s. Thomas Edison in New York and and George Westinghouse. And then Dwight Eisenhower did a major upgrade to our national uh, power grid, as did Franklin Roosevelt. We haven't done anything since then. We are using a 1940s power grid, a 1950s power grid, and it's 2021. It's time to localize it. 20% of our power that we generate is lost because of inefficiencies in the system, what are called line losses and transformer losses. And so we need to be generating electricity with wind and solar and biomass and geothermal and then using that electricity to drive our cars, to move our trucks, to move our trains, as they are doing in other countries. You know, Norway banned the sale of uh, non-electric vehicles. They've already done it. The United Kingdom is going to do it in 10 years. We can do this. What do you think? This is the Tom Hartman Program. If you were coming up with the plan for America, what would your first priorities be? Those are my top three. I realize there's a whole bunch of other really important stuff. Buck in Johnson Creek, Wisconsin. Hey, Buck, what's on your mind today? 
Good morning. Uh, I wanted you to talk about a plan for America. And first, I just want to make a comment that Republicans need participation pr- trophies because they can't admit they lost an election. So, you know, we've got to make them feel part of something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Every one of them should get a little plastic trophy. You're right. Yes. You showed up today. <laughs> um, I'm so, with you. Uh, in talking about how to fix things, a while back you made a comment you wish there was a new revenue source for our funding our public schools. And it's actually quite easy that it would be taking people who are collecting unemployment, putting them, it, if they want to, let them create an employee-owned cooperative, which after paying a living wage, uh, they give a percentage of profits, like 10%, to new job creation to create more employee-owned cooperatives, and 10% mm-hmm. to public schools. So over time, you create a pyramid of businesses that give back to the community. Oh, that, that's a, I, I, I like that idea, uh, although the, the simplest way to do it is to simply say, you know, no longer in this country are we going to fund public education with property taxes. We're just going to ban that. So, you know, which means it's going to end up being paid for with income tax on people, income tax on corporations, and, you know, I, I don't know, whatever fees states can come up with. But why not have... You know, the wealthy people of America who keep getting trillion dollar tax cuts. I mean, Ronald Reagan gave them a trillion dollar tax cut. George W. Bush gave them two trillion dollar tax cuts. Donald Trump gave them almost three trillion dollars in tax cuts in total. Why not just say, you know, we're just going to reverse 40 years of tax cuts and go back to a top tax bracket that worked like it did uh, for uh, Dwight Eisenhower and John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson and uh, Richard Nixon and Jerry Ford and Jimmy Carter. I mean, we had a whole bunch of presidents during a time when the country was growing rapidly. Why not just you know roll back these insane tax things, Buck? Well, with your way, you're talking about winners and losers. As I try to incorporate it into a business plan, you know, the employees win mm-hmm. because they got a good living wage job and nobody's doing anything they don't want to. So it's yeah. just, just food for thought. Yeah, no, it's it's good. I like it. Just real quickly, recap it for me, Buck, so I get it. For people collecting unemployment, give them the option to create an employee-owned cooperative that in the business plan mm-hmm. after they're paying a living wage. Give Where are they going to get the money to do that? Well, I'm doing it with my own personal business, and it'll probably take 200 years before it really has an impact. But if we did it as, a, like, I'm also a county board supervisor, I'm trying to do it on a county level. And if we did it with mm-hmm. congressmen and actually, you know, put $5 billion into creating 100,000 new businesses, you know, it would really have a serious impact. Yeah change our incorporation laws. It's a conversation I've had with uh, Richard Wolf a number of times. Buck, thank you. Thank you. Keep thinking. Think, keep thinking. You're brilliant. The rant that I just shared with you a minute ago, you can find over at tomhartman.medium.com, which is where I'm posting all my daily rants every single day. So if you want to do a deeper dive on anything you hear, you will find it there at t-h-o-m-h-a-r-t-m-a-n-n.medium.com. Dot com, TomHartman.Medium.com. But there's a couple of other things that I just wanted to bring to your attention. And then, you know, right after the break, I'll pick up all your phone calls and we can have a, a good long conversation about this. First of all, I wanted to bring you up to date on what Joe Biden has been doing. I think this is really important. He has invoked the Defense Production Act for the manufacture of coronavirus tests, N95 masks and vaccine syringes. I don't think he needs to do it yet anyway for the vaccines themselves because the companies are just cranking as fully and fast as they can anyway. I mean, it's profitable for them. So that's a good start. And then secondly, these are the 17 executive orders that he signed. This is mind-boggling. He reversed Trump's position with regard to the World Health Organization, put us back in the WHO. That was insane, right? I mean, just... You know, let's get out of the World Health Organization. Yeah, what kind of idiot would say that or even think that? Well, obviously, the idiots that Trump hired. He rejoined the Paris Climate Accord. Uh, and, oh, man. 
Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz came out. He tweeted something like, does uh, Joe Biden care more about the citizens of Paris than he does of the citizens of America? Like the Paris climate deal has to do with Paris. Uh, AOC responds by going, uh, you know, I'll bet you thought the Geneva Accords, that's the, you know, the injunctions against torture that were negotiated in Geneva, Switzerland. I'll bet you think the Geneva Accords are about Geneva's citizens. It's just, it's pathetic. Anyhow, he rejoined the Paris Climate Accord. He has canceled the XL pipeline and directed agencies to reverse more than 100 Trump actions to destroy the environment. This, by the way, I'm reading this from CNN. actually has a really good summary. He rescinded the Trump administration's 1776 commission, which now, you know, they published this whole thing, basically kind of whitewashing slavery and saying it was all justified in the early days and it was just okay and blah, blah, blah. This is, uh, you know, pathetic. But they took it off the website, off the .gov website. And now there's charges that much of this, it was so poorly done that it was plagiarism. I mean, they just stole it from right-wing writers. Anyhow, that's, that's been reversed. The census... He's reversed the census, the efforts of the census to ignore people who are here without documentation, unauthorized residents of the United States, you know, which is important because cities need resources, so you need to count all the people. By the way, that's what the Constitution calls for. He reversed the Trump administration's restriction on the seven Muslim-majority countries, the Muslims are called Muslim ban. He undid Trump's expansion of immigration enforcement. He halted construction of the border wall by ending the national emergency that Trump had declared to fund it. He directed his Office of Management and Budget Director to develop recommendations to modernize regulatory review and undid a whole bunch of Trump's destruction. You know, regulations are protections for people. Right-wing billionaires and corporations don't like them, but regulations are protections. He launched a 100-day masking challenge asking Americans to wear masks for the next 100 days and mandated them on federal land and in federal buildings. So now when you see anybody in Congress or on TV or whatever, nine times out of 10, they're going to be wearing a mask if they're on a federal property. He created the position of COVID-19 response coordinator responding directly to him. He extends the existing wide nationwide moratorium on evictions and foreclosures until uh, the end of March. He extended the pause on student loan payments and interest until September 30th for another nine months. It's a good start. I mean, we just need to pay off everybody's student debt, in my opinion. Feel free to debate me on that. I realize it'll help some people more than others, but none of us should have been in this situation in the first place. He issued an executive order preventing workplace discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. He brought back DACA, the Dreamers program, And he extended the uh, deferrals of deportation and work authorizations for Liberians with a safe haven in the United States until June 30th. These are people from Liberia in particular were targeted by the Trump administration. Why? You know, they're Africans. They have dark skin, even darker than the people coming from the southern border. So the Trump administration, Stephen Miller and friends, oh my God, that's sleazoid, you know, were particularly hysterical about black people from Africa. So they, they specifically went after Liberians. It's crazy. But, you know, hey, we're on the right track. And he's fired three of Trump's worst appointees. I'll tell you about those right after the break, and then I'll pick up your phone calls, because those stories are just mind-boggling, who these people were and what they were doing. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman. 
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And uh, welcome to Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from the crash of 2016. This is one of the very last chapters. It's titled Green Revolution. Just as America now faces an unsustainable thirst for energy, so too was Germany faced with a power crisis in the late 1990s. Growing demands for electricity collided with the reality that the country has no oil reserves and a strong bias among its people against building nuclear power plants in the wake of the nearby Chernobyl meltdown. Yet the government knew that the country needed the electricity, equivalent of at least one or two new nuclear power plants over the next decade. So how to generate that much electricity without nuclear power? In 1999, progressives in Germany passed the 100,000 Roofs Program, which mandated that banks had to provide low-interest 10-year loans to homeowners sufficient for them to put solar panels on their roofs. They then passed the Renewable Energy Law and integrated the 100,000 Roofs Program into it in 2004. The Renewable Energy Law, REL, mandated that for the next 10 years, the power company had to buy power back from those homeowners at a level substantially above the going rate so that the homeowner's income from the solar panels would equal their loan payments on the panels and would also represent the actual cost to the power company to generate that amount of power by building a new nuclear power plant. At the end of the 10 years, the power company gets to buy solar power at its regular rate, and it now has a new source of power without having to pay and maintain and eventually dismantle a nuclear reactor. In fact, while the reactor would have a 20 to 30 year lifespan, the solar panels typically last 50 years. For the homeowners, it was a no-brainer. They were getting low-interest loans from banks for the solar panels, and the power companies were paying for the power generated from those panels at a higher rate, uh, high enough to pay off the loans. It was like getting solar power panels for free. If anything, the government underestimated how rapidly Germans would embrace the program, and thus how quickly power would be produced by the program. By 2007, Germany accounted for about half the entire world's solar market. Just that one year, 2007 saw 1,300 megawatts, and a megawatt is a million watts, 1,300 megawatts of solar generating capacity brought online just across Germany. For comparison, consider the average generating capacity of each of the last five nuclear power plants brought online in the United States. That capacity is 1,100 megawatts. So Germany had 1,300 megawatts just in 2007 added. In 2008, Germany added 2,000 megawatts of solar power to their grid, like two nukes, And in 2009, homeowners and businesses put onto their roofs enough solar panels to glean an additional 2,500 megawatts. Although the goal for the first decade of this century was to generate around 3,000 megawatts, eliminating the need to build two new nuclear power plants, the simple no-risk program had instead added over 8,000 megawatts of power, roughly eight nuclear power plants. And because the generation sources were scattered across the country, there was no need to run new high-tension power lines from central generating stations, making it more efficient and less expensive. Meanwhile, as dozens of German companies got into the business of manufacturing and installing solar power systems, the cost dropped by more than half between 1997 and 2007 and continues to plummet. The Germans expect that by 2050, more than a quarter of all their electricity will come from solar. It's now just over 1%. Now, I wrote this book two and a half years ago. Germany this summer produced 100% of their electricity this way. That's how rapidly this has changed, just in the last three years. It's really remarkable. Adding to the roughly 12.5% of all German energy currently produced by renewable sources, mostly hydro, but also wind, biomass, and geothermal. The solar panel program has been so successful that the German government is now thinking that it's time to back off and leave this to the marketplace, which they've largely done. And it's not just leaving it to the marketplace. They had to reinvent their grid. There's to be a smart grid to handle all the added electricity that all these solar panels were producing. They have too much electricity now in Germany. Germany is now considering incentives to its world-famous domestic auto industry to manufacture flex-fuel plug-in hybrid automobiles that can get over 500 miles per gallon of strategic gasoline boosted by domestically produced rooftop solar with existing technology. Meanwhile, Denmark has invested billions in having more than half of its entire auto fleet using only electricity by 2030. And China is no slouch when it comes to renewable energy. 
Although the Chinese continue to bring another dirty coal-fired power plant online about once a week, they surpassed every other nation in the world in 2010 in direct investment in the production of solar and wind power. As the Los Angeles Times reported in March of 2010, U.S. clean energy investments hit $18 billion last year. A report from the Pew Charitable Trust said a little more than half the Chinese total of $34 billion. Five years ago, Chinese investments in clean energy totaled just $2.5 billion. The United States also slipped behind 10 other countries, including Canada and Mexico, in clean energy investments as a share of the national economy. The Pew report pointed to another factor constraining U.S. competitiveness, a lack of national mandates for renewable energy production or a surcharge on greenhouse gas emissions that would make fossil fuels more expensive. The ultimate power to the people is for homes to have their own solar roofs, no longer needing power lines from distant power plants owned by big transnational corporations. The crash of 2016. So here are the three highly toxic people that Joe Biden terminated that Donald Trump had brought into office. And thank God, I mean, the damage they had done already is breathtaking. Michael Pack was fired. He was the head of the U.S. Agency for Global Media. They run Voice of America. Voice of America is hated by authoritarians all around the world. It is absolutely hated. We broadcast in dozens of different languages all over the world, and we have historically broadcast news, just straight news. And Michael Pack took over Voice of America, fired most of the news people, hired a bunch of Trump toadies, turned the Voice of America into a mouthpiece for Donald Trump and for authoritarian government. And he unconstitutionally punished the journalists who were left there who actually did coverage of the administration. Peck complained in his termination that, in his resignation letter, that his termination will long be viewed as a partisan act. Right? Ass. Secondly, Biden sacked Kathleen Craninger. She was the head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, that agency that Elizabeth Warren brought into creation. Because as soon as she was put in, in 2018, by Donald Trump, she immediately started undermining it. She scrapped a rule that uh, the restricted predatory payday lending. She pressured staff to downplay the harm to consumers. She refused to enforce a federal law that protected military personnel from predatory lending. Refused to enforce a federal law that protected our soldiers, sailors, Air Force and Marines. She yanked federal support from military families who were defrauded by lenders. In the middle of the pandemic, she approved a rule that allows debt collectors to harass Americans with unlimited texts and emails demanding repayment. And third, Biden demanded the resignation of Peter Robb. He is in charge of the National Labor Relations Board. He is vehemently anti-union. I believe he's the guy... There was one of the top three people at uh, the Department of Labor was actually the guy who worked for Reagan when he fired Patco people back in 1981. I'm not sure if Rob was him or not, but during his tenure, he tried to limit employees' free speech. He tried to give managers more leeway to engage in wage theft. He tried to hobble unions' ability to collect dues. He tried to prevent employers from helping workers unionize. Wednesday evening, he said, I'm not going to step down. And so Joe Biden fired him. Ha! Fired him. God bless him. Anyhow, let's pick up your calls here. Joe in Toledo, Ohio. Hey, Joe, what's on your mind? Hi, this is Jose. How are you doing? Oh, Jose, um, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, it, it does say Jose. My, my apologies, Jose. That's okay. I've been called many things worse. Anyway, I guess three things that I really would like to see our country really move towards is, first off, because I'm a teacher and at my job I help kids in their post-secondary education and how expensive it is for kids to even think about going to trade schools or community colleges or regular four-year programs. It's outlandish. Mm-hmm. Basically, working-class kids can't go. I know myself, I started before the Reagan era college, and college was reasonable. It was 225 bucks a quarter. And then by the time Reagan was done, a year into Reagan, I had to quit college and work my way through college in a factory, and it took me years. But uh, that's one thing. The second thing is definitely we should look at the C 
serious overhauling of our infrastructure because that's something that's going to feed money back into the government. I mean, through taxes and good wages and all the jobs that are created. And, and, you know, about the time that they need to be fixed again, a cycle of maybe about 30 years, there we are again. It's a continuous thing that will keep feeding our country internally. Uh, It makes complete sense to me. I don't know uh, and then finally, You're absolutely right. I mean, the Eisenhower Highway System has paid for itself probably a thousand times over, for example. Yeah, and then the third thing would be, you know, we have to really deal with this medical-industrial complex that's just killing people. Yeah. I mean, it's outlandish. I, I did a short stay in the hospital this fall, and it's amazing how much money five days cost. And I don't see the workers getting benefits, nurses, the people working in hospitals, they're just working Joe's. But where's the money going? Of course, to the top. We really have to deal with that issue. And I think a single payer system would really help this. It you know, kind of put a wedge between the corporate ability to raise prices and inflate situations. That's my input. Yep, anyway. and it's brilliant. Jose, thank you. Solid. Nicholas in uh, San Cristobal, Mexico. Hey, Nicholas. Okay, here goes. The first thing I would do would be to uh, institute a transaction fee for all stock market transactions, you name it, all of the uh, market transactions. A half a penny would raise hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. There are trillions of transactions every year, most electronic. And we had that tax from the 1930s until the 1960s. It was called a STET tax, a securities transaction excise tax. Exactly. And free public education, public education, underline it, private colleges and universities, of course, they have a right to compete. But free public education might help to guarantee that we not have a an electric stupid enough to ever vote for someone like Trump again and help in a million other ways that you understand. The third would be Medicare for all or some form of universal health care that would allow people to change jobs without fearing the loss of their health insurance. And it does keep them locked into jobs that don't pay enough, don't challenge them in any way, and in no way progress the, uh, the society as a whole. So those would be my three ideas. That's great. Now, how does health care work in Mexico, Nicholas? Uh, it doesn't work uh, all that well, but it does work better to some degrees. There is no universal health care. There's no Medicare for all. There are public clinics. They will help people. But will they get the kind of help if they have serious problems? No, they won't. Some will. Mm -hmm. Most won't. Pharmacies, believe it or not, here do a tremendous amount of health care. The pharmacists themselves have, working alongside them, newly certified doctors from the universities in Mexico who have gotten free public education because the country wants more doctors. And what they have to do is, for a minimum of six months, they must work for, they get something like 400 U.S. dollars a month. They live in in virtual poverty. And they must work with a large pharmacy, and they must provide free medical health care to all comers. And that helps. Wow. Now, I think I encountered that. Last March, my family does a an annual vacation. My one of my brother, two of my brothers actually, and, and our kids, and and we were on a cruise down in Mexico. And I got food poisoning, and I went to a pharmacy. I, you know, we got off the ship. I went to a pharmacy. I said, I think I've got food poisoning. This guy comes out. He asked me a whole bunch of questions about exactly what's going on, and uh, he gives me a, a package of an antibiotic. As I recall, it was uh, moxicillin. It cost me like four dollars. And uh, it was like, oh, how about that? It works brilliantly well. Yeah, that's something that we could import here. Nicholas, it's always great to hear from you. And thanks again for moderating our YouTube channel. It's great having you with us. Nicholas in San Cristobal, Mexico. Tim in Matawan, Michigan. Hey, Tim, what's up? Hey, Tom. I don't know if this is a good idea or not, but a brain like yours should be able to figure it out. I think they should put an expiration date or a time limit on money. What do you mean by that? Well, it'd be hard for billionaires to store their money in a bank in the Cayman Islands and stuff like that if it expired and it was worthless. 
Yeah, yeah but it would also be hard for a middle-class family that's got 30000 bucks in savings. And How about instead we bring in Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax and we tax the billionaires 2% on their money bins? Well, they would think that's so unfair because they're so picked on, you know. Oh, the, yes, think, yeah, the poor uh, billionaires. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. there's definitely things that could be worked out, like a savings program and stuff like that, or retirement age. But I think it would do a lot towards uh, redistributing the wealth. Yeah. Okay, Tim, thank you. An idea. I'm going to have to think about that one. Michael in Howe, Michigan, also in Michigan. Hey, Michael, what's up? Hi. What I would like to do is get rid of the filibuster because Republicans, every time the Democrats come up with a good idea in the House, the Republicans immediately filibuster it. And it allows the so-called middle-of-the-road Republicans to hide behind the filibuster and not really have to do anything. The other thing is... The Warren and Michael, before you get your other thing, what you said is so important. And ending the filibuster, if the Democrats want to get anything done in the next two years, and the next two years are going to lay the foundation for whether the Biden presidency is going to be effective and successful, that is to say, more Democrats get elected in 2022, and we continue to hold the House, the Senate, and the White House in 2024, their ability to have success is going to be a function of their ability to pass legislation. Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer should be making job one right now the filibuster. And if you want to share your opinion about that with your senator, call 202-224-3121 or 225-3121. Either one will get you there. And ask for each, you know, you've got two senators. All of us do, unless we're from Washington, D.C. Ask for your senator, senator's office, and say, end the filibuster. And that's a really important thing to be doing right now. 202-224-3121. Back to you, Michael. Amen. The other thing is the Warren tax is a good idea and tell the Republicans that we're so concerned about the deficit that we need to raise taxes on the wealthy to pay for the deficit and start just hammering away at that argument so then they can chase their tail for whatever. Yeah, jujitsu. Use their own arguments against them. I like it. I like it a lot. Thank you very much for that. John in Los Angeles. Hey, John, your thoughts? Hey, Tom, great hearing you. I was following your broadcast this morning, and you said there may not be you know, anything to do but the uh, second impeachment, which is going to go nowhere. But there actually is. It's code A. We don't know that. Anyway, you might have been listening to an earlier show or something, John, but if you're talking about... Maybe it was uh, earlier. Sure, yeah. This is what Nancy Pelosi should have did months ago, or at least when he made the phone calls of Georgia. It's called Code 8, Article 2384, the 14th Amendment, seditious conspiracy. Two or more persons in any states or in any place subject to jurisdiction of the U.S. conspire to overthrow, put down, or destroy by force the government of the U.S. or to levy or to levy war against them or by force to seize take or possess any property of the U.S., and here's an important part, or to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any laws of the U.S. is 20 years in prison. Yeah, and, uh, you know, if you're not going to charge Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley with 20 years in prison, at the very least, expel them from the Senate. Another great thing to uh, let your senators know about. John, I'm with you. I'm totally with you. The 14th Amendment should be used against all of these guys, all 147 in the House, all dozen of them in the Senate. to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It's the Tom Hartman Program, the place where despair is not an option. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. On the Science Revolution this week, will AI robots destroy the human race? And why does AI intelligence bond more with the far right? John Noel 
from Greenpeace USA is here on how he thinks big oil and gas funded the attempted coup on January 6th. Latricia Adams of Black Millennials for Flint drops by saying, finally, charges on the Flint water crisis. It's been more than six years since the Flint water crisis began when the children of Flint were poisoned by lead and by their governor. Plus, in our geeky science, there's a new study out, and guess what? Eating chili peppers could add years to your life and could cut your risk of cancer and heart disease. Tune into the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. Line with us is our old buddy, Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, the co-founder of democracyatwork.info, the author of numerous books, his latest, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Uh, his other website is rdwolf with two fs.com. You can tweet him at profwolf with two fs. And Professor Wolf, welcome back. I'm curious, I laid out my three ideas, what I thought were the best stimulus ideas for America, which included health care, you know, universal health care, universal free education, and the Green New Deal. I'm curious what your list would be, how you think that America needs to be put back on track. Okay, I would give you the following three. Number one, an immediate federal jobs program, parallel to what Roosevelt did in the 1930s, We have currently at least 20 million people collecting unemployment insurance. They would much rather have a job. They would much rather have the pay that goes with a job, the self-esteem, the self-confidence. They would like to have the income that will allow them to keep their homes, pay their rent, cover their mortgage, all the rest. And we need that. These are people who could be producing a Green New Deal, providing the daycare that we lack as a nation, providing the services for the elderly who are becoming an ever larger part of our population. They could do these things that we badly need. They want a job, and that's what we ought to be doing. The tragedy is not only that the Biden administration hasn't proposed it, it's that they're not even discussing it. It's as if it never happened in American history when it did, and as if it weren't relevant now, which it urgently is. My second one my second one responds to the overwhelming majority of Americans in poll after poll who believe, and I think they are right, that the level of inequality in this society is not only morally and ethically bankrupt, but is a very bad economic reality that has to be fixed. And here's an interesting thought. If you really went after, particularly a wealth tax, a tax on stocks and bonds, which are currently not subject to a wealth tax. The United States is a bizarre society that subjects to wealth tax at the municipal level, homes, land, automobiles, and things like that, but exempts at the local municipal level and at the state and federal level any tax on the value of property held in the form of stocks and bonds, so-called intangible property. There is no excuse for it. It should be taxed. It would raise an enormous amount of money, which could pay for hiring all those workers and therefore avoid increasing the deficit, which our conservative brothers and sisters now begin, as usual, to worry about. And my third one is the more daring. My third one is to develop a sector in the United States of worker co-ops, institutions that are governed as uh, factories, offices, stores, by workers democratically. Majority vote. What we produce, what technology we use, and what we do with the revenue we generate. If that was done democratically, we wouldn't have the kind of inequality we have to correct for now. We'd have a radically different way of organizing business. Americans would become familiar with it, and then we could have informed choice about what kind of enterprise organization we want. These are three daring yes. But let me tell you, we are in the worst 
economic collapse since the Great Depression, coupled together with the worst public health disaster likewise in a century. So we are in very exceptional circumstances that require a lot more daring moves than what we're seeing from the Biden administration. So the first of your three was essentially the government becoming the employer of last resort. Is that a, exactly. a, an accurate rephrase? Exactly. Yes. And, I think, and by the way, it's exactly what Roosevelt did. That's what the WPA yes. was. That's what the Civilian Conservation Corps. Uh, there, there's, there's ample precedent and experience both in the United States and in countless other countries of responding to the kind of unemployment we have in that quick, creative way. Now, people who are a little more closer to the libertarian end of the spectrum, people like Andrew Yang, say instead of the government doing that, it should just give money to people and they'll go out and create their own jobs and they'll start businesses and, you know, vibrance things will follow. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know I don't know what universe that Andrew Yang lives in. If people are given a lot of money, what they will likely do is go out and spend the money. Especially given the amounts of money that we're talking about, they're not enough if you divide them by each person. Let me give you an example of a way you could do something like what he suggests with some hope of of it happening. In 1985, in Italy, they passed something called the Marcora Law. Here's what it did. Everybody who became unemployed had two options. Number one, you could get a, a weekly paycheck like we do here in the country. Number two, completely different plan B, not available ever in the United States. Nor will I embarrass my audiences by asking whether they ever heard about what I'm saying. Anyway, plan B, you could get nine, at least nine other unemployed, so there would be a minimum of ten. The Italian government will give you your entire lump sum uh, of your unemployment payments that you would have had to wait a year for week by week. You can get it all right now in a lump, you and at least nine other people, so a group of ten, on condition that you use the money to start a business that is a worker co-op, which is why Italy has more worker co-ops Whoa. than any other European country. Yeah. I, you know, why not... When, learn, when was that way, passed? What was the law? Marcora, M-A-R-C-O-R-A. It was passed in okay. 1985. Marcora is the name of the Italian legislator, you know, who, who shepherded it through the Italian parliament. It's still on the mm-hmm. books. Businesses have tried to block it, but they have failed because there's a big enough left in Italy to prevent it. But by the way, there's the hint. Businesses were opposed. To give people money now is not a breakup of the dominance that particularly mega corporations now occupy. It's very, very difficult. If you had a government program that could not only give the money to help workers start this kind of thing, but could, for example, as already exists in other countries, commit that government orders will at least say 20% or something go to such enterprises, in the same way that we give special consideration to the minority-led businesses or women-led businesses, to level the playing field. The same could and should be done for worker co-ops so that they get this kind of incentive so Americans can learn how they work and make an informed decision. I mean, yes, these are big breaks in our system, but our system isn't working real well, and the burden shouldn't be on us to prove in advance how these things work. There ought to be the willingness to try the kinds of solutions that are adequate in scope and depth to the level of problem we now face. Yeah, and the idea of uh, basically giving seed money to unemployed people to start worker worker owned co ops is absolutely brilliant. I mean, I, you know, you and I have been talking about this for uh, it's what seems like years. Brilliant, Professor Richard Wolf. It is always an honor and a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks so much for dropping by today. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Professor Richard Wolf. His new book, The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, democracyatwork.info and rdwolf with two fs.com. You can tweet him at Prof Wolf. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Hi. 
Our book today is The War on Normal People by Andrew Yang. This is from Chapter 2, How We Got Here, page 12. The Great Displacement didn't arrive overnight. It has been building for decades as the economy and labor markets changed in response to improving technology, financialization, changing corporate norms, and globalization. In the 1970s, when my parents worked at GE and Blue Cloth Blue Shield in upstate New York, their companies provided generous pensions and expected them to stay for decades. Community banks were boring businesses that let money to local companies for a modest return. Over 20% of workers were unionized. Some economics problems existed. Growth was uneven and inflation periodically high, but income inequality was low. Jobs provided benefits, and Main Street businesses were the drivers of the economy. There were only three television networks, and in my house we watched them on a TV with an antenna that we fiddled with to make the picture clearer. That all seems awfully quaint today. Pensions disappeared for private sector employees years ago. Most community banks were gobbled up by mega banks in the 1990s. Today, five banks control 50% of the commercial banking industry, which is self-mushroomed to the point where finance enjoys about 25% of all corporate profits. Union membership fell by 50%. 94% of the jobs created between 2005 and 2015 were temp or contractor jobs without benefits. People working multiple gigs to make ends meet is increasingly the norm. Real wages have been flat or even declining. The chances that an American born in 1990 will earn more than their parents are down to 50%. For Americans born in 1940, the same figure was 92%. Thanks to Milton Friedman, Jack Welch, and other corporate titans, the goals of large companies began to change in the early 70s and early 1980s. The notion they espoused that a company exists only to maximize its share price became gospel in business schools and boardrooms around the country. Companies were pushed to adopt shareholder value as their sole measuring stick. Hostile takeovers, shareholder lawsuits, and later activist hedge funds served as prompts to ensure the managers were committed to profitability at all costs. On the flip side, CEOs were granted stock options for the first time that wedded their individual gain to the company's share price. The ratio of CEO to worker pay rose from 20 to 1 in 1965 to 271 to 1 in 2016. Benefits were streamlined and reduced, and the relationship between company and employee weakened to become more transactional. Simultaneously, the major banks grew and evolved as Depression-era regulations separating consumer lending and investment banking were abolished. Financial deregulation started under Ronald Reagan in 1980 and culminated in the Financial Services Modernization Act of 1999 under Bill Clinton that really set the banks loose. The securities industry grew 500% as a share of GDP between 1980 and the 2000s, while ordinary bank deposits shrank from 70 to 50%. Financial products multiplied as even Main Street companies were driven to pursue financial engineering to manage their affairs. GE, my dad's old company, and once a beacon of manufacturing, became the fifth biggest financial institution in the country by 2007. With improved technology and new access to global markets, American companies realized they could outsource manufacturing, information technology, and customer service to Chinese and Mexican factories and Indian programmers and call centers. U.S. companies outsourced and offshored 14 million jobs by 2013, many of which had previously been filled by domestic workers at higher wages. This resulted in lower prices, higher efficiencies, and some new opportunities, but also increased pressures on American workers who now had to compete in a global labor pool. Automation started out on farms earlier in the century with tractors and then migrated to factories in the 1970s. Manufacturing employment began to slip around 1978 as wage growth began to fall. Median wages used to go up in lockstep with productivity and GDP growth before diverging sharply in the 1970s. Since 1973, productivity has skyrocketed relative to the hourly compensation of the average wage earner. How workers are compensated and how their companies perform stopped even being aligned over the same period. Even as corporate profitability has soared to record highs, workers are earning less. The share of GDP going to wages has fallen from almost 54% in 1970 to 44% in 2013, while the share going to corporate profits went from 4% to 11%. Being a shareholder has been great for your bottom line. Being a worker, not so much. Today, inequality has surged to historic levels, with benefits flowing increasingly to the top 1% and 20% of earners due to an aggregation of capital at the top and increased winner-take-all economics. 
top 1% have accrued 52% of the real income growth in America since 2009. Technology is a big part of this story as it tends to lead to a small handful of winners. Studies have shown that everyone is less happy in an unequal society, even those at the top. The wealthy experience higher levels of depression and suspicion in unequal societies. Apparently being high status is easier when you don't feel bad about it. Companies can now prosper, grow, and mint record profits without hiring many people or increasing wages. Both job creation and wage growth have been weaker than the top-line economic growth would suggest since the 1970s. In each of the last several decades, the economy has created lower percentages of new jobs, including no new net jobs between 2000 and 2010. Andrew Yang, The War on Normal People. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Uh, Aaron in Carmichael, California. Hey, Aaron, what's on your mind? Okay, so I had an idea because I was thinking about how Joe Biden just got inaugurated. I think what would be best is if he tackled the coronavirus and he left the Trump tax cuts alone except for to incentivize renewable energy, the doubling of the standard deduction. Okay, that makes explain sense. it. What I'm saying. So, so I'm saying like, so for married couples, it's I think twenty four thousand eight hundred. If I can't remember my numbers exactly, and it's like thirteen thousand or so for singles. And if they are able to standard, have that standard deduction to knock that amount of income off their their adjusted gross income, they would effectively be paying lower taxes. So I think that would be a good right. idea, just because we need to see how things turn out for like yeah. a year. You know what I'm saying? Right. Well, yeah, and when George W. Bush wanted to stimulate the economy, his solution, and Donald Trump, you know, who was a big advocate of this too, uh, their solution was uh, stop collecting Social Security taxes, right? which, of course, kneecapped Social Security, which was a major mission of George. George W. Bush ran for Congress as a congressman from Texas in 1978 on the platform of ending Social Security. And he didn't get elected. He lost that election. Surprise, surprise. But, you know, it's been a mission his entire life and Donald Trump's. In fact, pretty much all of the right-wing billionaires and multimillionaires like the Bush family and like the Trump family are opposed to Social Security. So they always want to take a bite out of Social Security. But your point of raising the standard deduction would have uh, largely the same impact, particularly if you adjusted the uh, wage deduction tables, if the IRS, you know, adjusted those tables immediately. It would have that same impact of stimulating, you know, giving low-income people more money right away and stimulating the economy. So, yeah, spot on. I salute your idea, Aaron. Thank you. Brian in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Hey, Brian, what's up? Hey, Tom. You've been talking about ways to revitalize the economy. I have one that Mm -hmm. wouldn't even involve passing any new laws. Just start using the Germany Trust Act. Yeah, <laughs> I am with you. And the Clayton Antitrust Act of the 19 teens, I think it was, 1918, and the 19, either 1956 or 1957 Antitrust Act. There have been three major revisions of it over the years, and then a whole bunch of minor ones. And uh, they, they basically what happened was in 19, either 82 or 83, I forget which, it's in one of my books, Reagan uh, directed his Justice Department and his Commerce Department to simply stop enforcing the antitrust laws. And that led to this explosion, you know, the mergers and acquisitions mania. Yeah. And so uh, just start enforcing the damn laws. I am totally with you, Brian. That's uh, spot on. Uh, brilliant, Have a good one. brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Thank you. Alfredo in Mountain View, California. Hey, Alfredo. Animal agriculture? Yes, Tom. According to the United Nations panel of scientists on climate change, They say that about 51% or so of all the greenhouse gases emitted into the atmosphere are caused by animal agriculture. I didn't know it was that high. I know it's huge, though. It's absolutely massive. And it's not just animal agriculture. It's animal agriculture the way we do it, intensive animal agriculture. Because we're feeding animals, cows and pigs in particular, food that they are not designed to digest. 
And as a consequence, they're producing enormous amounts of methane. Plus, you've got all the carbon footprint of growing the soybeans and corn and, and grains that we're feeding to these animals that are that evolution didn't design yeah, to eat grains exactly. in the first place. And then you've got all the water that goes along with that. So yeah, I'm I'm totally with you on that, Alfredo. You know, if everybody in the country was to just you know even you don't even have to give up meat, just cut it down to a one or two days a week, and you will have an impact. Now again, we don't want to make the mistake of thinking that our own personal choices are the things that's going to save the world. It's going to help, but we have to have you know policy changes. And at that, I would say we, we should be regulating animal agriculture in ways that discourage it. Alfredo, thank you. That was excellent. Gary in Atlanta, Georgia. Gary, you got the last minute. What's up? I got a quick question. Can Joe Biden use his executive power to open up Medicare for all and anybody who wants to be a part of that system could give their money to the government instead of to insurance companies. He can't because it's law. You have to alter the law. If the law provided the Social Security Administration or Medicare Administration the power to come up with their own rules, then, then you could do it, but you can't do it the way the law is written right now. But it should be high on everybody's list, Gary, and that's a good one. Thank you, Gary, very much for the call, and thanks for watching us down there in Atlanta. Thank you for being with us today. We'll be back same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. And uh, get over to tomhartman.medium.com, too, and let me know what you think about the writings I've been doing the last couple of weeks. i got about two weeks worth of work up there. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.